Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa afturu salati wa atamu taslim ala Sayyidina Muhammadin as-sadiq al-ameen. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man istanna bi sunnatihi ila yawmiddin. Allahumma alimna ma yunfa'una wa anfa'na bima allamtana wa zidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'aliman. Innaka ala kulli shayin qadir wa ba'd. Alhamdulillah. This is lesson two or three. It's two, right? Lesson two in module seven, family law. And last week we introduced the topic of family law, and we said that it's not just about marriage, it also discusses matters such as divorce and the rights of children, the rights of parents, and family ties in general. And this is all fardain knowledge because most people are going to get married, so they need to know the rights, the obligations, the responsibilities, and before all of those things, they need to know the proper manner of getting married, the proper knowledge they have to know for the process of getting married. And that's really where we are right now in that journey, learning the process of marriage. And after that, we learn the other things, even if we hope that divorce is never in the picture in our family lives. It is still important to know the basic rulings on how it is done so that, God forbid, something like that ever arises. It's done in a proper way that doesn't make things worse. And the rights of children and parents and family ties, those are you know, relatively easy to discuss. Uh, but the last part, family ties, I think we need to go into a little detail about what it means birul uh, or filial piety as an obligation, what that looks like, as well as what happens when it gets abused and what are the parameters of obedience and when can a person set boundaries. That's a, something to explore later, inshallah. So last week we talked about the definition of marriage linguistically, lughatan, as well as the technical meaning in legal jargon, nikah. And then we looked at the pillars of that and then the legal ruling on getting married. So this, as a quick review, what's the basic legal ruling, the norm for most people with regards to marriage? What is the hukum shar'i? Recommended, highly recommended. And there is some difference among the imams about the level of recommendation involved. We have mandub as a word used among the fuqaha. And then we have among the, in the Hanafi school, they say, sunnah mu'akkada, which means that it shouldn't be neglected. It should be something that one seeks out. So now we're going to go into the practical side of things and look at basically two issues. The process of proposing and then the issue of suitability, so kafa'a. So the betrothal process, we're looking at three terms here. The proposal, the proposing person, and the proposed to, the one to whom they propose in marriage. So in Arabic, to make this easier, you have the khutbah, not to be confused with khutbah. The khutbah is the address, but the khutbah is the proposal. The one proposing is the khatib, and the one proposed to, the, the woman, the girl, is the makhtubah, right? So you have these three. So because that of the, the multiple objectives of Islam that are fulfilled through marriage, such as the protection of one's deen, and the protection of the family unit and furthering the human species and the foundation of civilization through the family unit, because of these maqasid, it is very important that both spouses have certain qualities that will ensure that stability in the future. So once compatibility is determined and the man wants to seek marriage, he should propose. And you'll note here in the slides, there's a little 
asterisk there because it means it is allowed for the woman to propose. Uh, Islamically speaking, there is nothing to prohibit a woman from proposing, but it would be very, very rare. But shara'an, there's nothing prohibiting that. But the norm is that a man will propose. So let's look at what that entails and the adab, the manners, what is recommended in that process. It's important to get these things right because if they are done improperly or incorrectly, it can, it can affect the process, uh, effectively ending it uh, if done improperly. So <coughs> they say, the fuqaha mentioned that among the recommendations for the proposal is that it's done uh, in secret. And when they say in secret, they don't mean, you know, the guy and the girl are alone together in a room and he's proposing in secret. That's not what they mean. What they mean by secret is that it is among the family. His family and her family, or if he doesn't have a Muslim family, him going to her family, and it's only within the families or between him and the family. Meaning it's not a public matter. So the Islamic ideal is not to go to a public event like a family night and in front of a hundred people bring a bouquet of roses and say, Assalamu alaikum, sister, I'd like to propose to you in marriage. Where's your father? That's public. There's nothing haram about that, but it's not advised. Likewise, it just shouldn't be something that you go around announcing ahead of time or in the process. Because you have people who are envious, you have haters, you have people who just want to stop it because they feel bitter, because they're not married. So you want to avoid all that, keep it secret, so between the families. And the proposal should ideally begin with approaching the father first. That's the ideal. Now we recognize that that's not always going to be a possibility because of our our social reality where a young man may meet a young woman in university or at work or in some public place and he doesn't have access to the father and maybe he tries to gauge from her if there's an interest. If that is the route, then he can ask her but he asks her with modesty and adab if she's engaged or if she's married. If she says she's engaged, he can't propose to her. That's unlawful. You cannot give the khutbah over the khutbah of another person. So she says, no, someone else has proposed and we're in discussion and we're thinking about getting married and working through the details. That's it. You don't carry it any further. If she says, I'm married, well, obviously nothing is going to happen now. If you as a man are too shy to broach this topic, then it's recommended to get a a female to ask on your behalf. So she can go and say, hey, you know, there's this brother, you know, he's interested in marriage. What do you think? And, you know, she can make that connection. If she accepts, the next stage is not to plan the wedding with her. The next stage is to go to the father. So if a young man is making the father the last person he approaches before getting to know her and talk to her and chat with her and hang out with her and all these other steps, something is wrong. He is skipping the proper steps. And I think any father, if he finds out that that's what was taking place before the man comes to him, he will be very upset. He will respect that he takes the proper steps and comes to him and talks to the father. So <coughs> if a person, the fuqaha say, if, the, if you know that the culture of the parents will frown on even approaching the girl before approaching the father, you should go approach the father before you even talk to her. So, you know, if, if the man is shy and he wants to send another female to ask her, but if he knows that culture is one that values the the man going to the father first, let the father be the one to break the news that she's not interested. Let him be the one to find out from his daughter if there's an interest, right? You want to avoid any possible conflict 
or miscommunications. So let's say that everything is going swell and you're pretty sure that if, if you propose to her, she's going to accept. There are certain recommendations. The fuqaha mentioned that there are certain auspicious times in which to do the proposal. Some of them say after Asr, uh, some say uh, on the, after Asr on a Jum'ah is a very auspicious occasion to do that because of the particular blessing of that time. Because what we know about post Asr on Jum'ah, what is that time associated with? Anyone know? Right. Sa'atul Ijaba, it's the hour in which the du'as are accepted. And maybe it's the hour in which this, this proposal is accepted too. So it's an auspicious occasion. Now in that process, we, we talk about getting to know the bride and the bride getting to know the, the future husband and so on. But the first step is to see if there's any attraction, right? That's a reality, that's important. And it's highly recommended for the man to look at his prospective bride before marriage. And it kind of sounds funny to say that because this is what the fuqaha say in the books of law. But imagine a person who gets married to someone without looking at them first and seeing what, if there's an attraction. So it sounds strange even to say that because it's really not an issue in today's time. Most people are going to say, I won't. I need to see what they look like first, and then if there's an attraction, we'll see what other interests are there, if there's chemistry, and then we take it from there. Now in modern times, uh, a lot of times this will be through photographs, uh, or it may be a person seeing that individual at school or at work, and outside of those particular contexts, right, they're in public, if they're in public and the person looks, they are allowed to look to determine if there's an attraction. If it's a photograph and is given with the permission of that girl, then it's permissible to look at. Outside of that context, it should be with her knowledge that he's going to look at her. It has to be with her knowledge or with the guardian's knowledge, the father's knowledge. And it should be with a reasonable certainty that she's going to say yes. There's reasons for this. Uh, number one, <laughs> you know, imagine you know someone uh, may want to look at you to determine if you may be a suitable spouse. You would like to know when that might happen so you can, you know, you know, maybe fix yourself up a bit. You wouldn't want them to come as soon as you're fresh out of bed and, you know, you're a little disheveled and you, you're not at your best. You want to look at your best. Uh, likewise, it should be done with the girl's knowledge because you can't allow someone to go around gawking at women randomly only to be told, or when they're told to stop it, they say, oh, I'm just looking at potential spouses. It has to be structured. It can't just be a free-for-all. And this looking is limited to the face and the hands. And this means that uh, parents should not be sharing uncovered photographs of their daughters to potential spouses. It should be proper hijab, face and hands. Let's do things the right way in the very beginning. Uh, it's not an ideal that she shows her hair as to the potential spouse. Um, that is sufficient. And the fuqaha mentioned the wisdom behind this. They say, from the face, you determine the beauty if there's an attraction. And by looking at the hands, you can intuit the general shape of that person based on your taste. So that's why it's the face and the hands. During this process, it's not permitted to be in khalwa. What is khalwa? Being alone. Right, being alone. It's not permitted to be in khalwa with a potential spouse. It's not permitted to be alone in a room unaccompanied by other people, by parents or guardians or relatives or other people. This is not permitted. Uh, you can't be alone with them with the claim that you're getting to know them. So this means we don't have this notion of just spending time alone to get to know one another. It has to be chaperoned. It has to be supervised. Now, does that mean that there has to be people surrounding them the entire time? Not necessarily. It is the custom of many people that 
as they introduce the young man and the young woman, they talk together as a whole family, and they may go off to the side. They're an eye shot, they can see them, but they may not be able to hear everything, just to give them a little bit of space to talk alone. So they're alone, but not alone. So it's not khalwa. But any uh, stay, staying alone with each other or going out uh, alone, this is prohibited. And the question is, how do you get to know them? Well, you get to know them through other ways. And something not mentioned in the books of fiqh, because it didn't exist back then, is the use of social media platforms for talking privately with a potential spouse. And one should be very cautious here because it is possible to speak with someone on the phone with some measure of supervision or to exchange text or emails, but that should only be for a very specific purpose of determining if there's chemistry and getting to know them uh, in a halal manner using proper language. Once they determine that they want to get married, they've made their istikharas, he is proposed and she's accepted the proposal, and they're engaged, once they've reached that stage and the, both families are good with this, it's not the time to communicate any longer on, uh, through email or text or anything like that. Anything, any communication at that point should just be with the families, with the parents, and should only be about the arrangements of the wedding. There's no more talking about, you know, what is your, you know, what's your life mission, what do you want to do? Where, do you, where would you like to go on vacation, you know? That's not the time. That's for after marriage. A lot of times people will get to know one another through chatting on these platforms and they determine to get married, so they're basically engaged. And then they continue to talk freely as if they're already married. And this is where the problem comes in because now there's feelings and they speak in a way that is only suitable for people who are already married. And a lot of people may fall into errors, make a lot of mistakes, and end up in the haram doing that. They should cut off that communication. It should only be about business, meaning the, the marriage itself, because they're still not married. <coughs> so we're getting now to the issue of suitability, the qualities that, that should be with the husband or with the wife. And our starting point for that is the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, where he mentioned that the highest priority is that the potential spouse has deen, religious commitment. The Prophet wasallam says in the hadith that if there comes to you with an offer of marriage, one with whose deen, their religious commitment, and khuluq, their character, you are pleased, then marry her to him. If you do not do so, there will be fasadun fil ardh. There will be corruption, mischief on earth, and widespread corruption. So you see here in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ is addressing the parents or the, the father of the potential bride, the girl, telling him that if a young man comes and proposes and you are happy with his deen and you are happy with his character, you should marry her off to him. And if you do not, if you continue to move the goalpost and put forth conditions that are almost impossible to fulfill, delaying and delaying and delaying and making it almost impossible, what's going to happen? Fasad, corruption. And, and I've, I've seen and heard of too many stories where that's happened. Uh, very clearly where you have a good person who checks off all the boxes except for maybe one and the girl uh, likes him he likes her he's good in his dean and character but the father says no and time goes on and she ends up falling into the haram and then he starts blaming her when yes she's responsible for herself but he should also blame himself because he put the obstacles that made the halal difficult while everywhere else in society the haram is easy. We're not in the time where haram is difficult and halal is easy. No, halal should be made easy as possible because the haram is very, very easy. So that's our starting point. 
In the second hadith we have, it's about women. In the second hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says that a woman is married for four things. Her wealth, her lineage, her beauty, and her religious commitment. So her, her wealth, meaning she's, you know, she comes from money, so there's a certain prestige and social standing there. Her lineage, she comes from a good family, and her beauty, and her religious commitment. He says, وسلم, seek the one who is religiously committed. May your hands be rubbed with dust. Taribat yadak, which is an expression in Arabic. Uh, so this is telling us that in the hierarchy of, of qualities, the top quality to seek out is deen. Because money comes and goes, and yes, it's nice to have someone from a nice family lineage, but character is more important than the lineage because a person could have a good lineage, but they're horrible. And a person could uh, come from a, a not so uh, notable lineage, but they have good character. And beauty fades, but good character and deen remains. Deen enhances the natural beauty, and natural beauty fades quicker when there's bad character mixed in. This is a reality. That doesn't mean that you cannot marry someone for those qualities, it just means that the top priority is deen. So with those two things in mind, these two narrations, we have a couple of things to mention before we get to the issue of kafa'ah, which is suitability. Uh, what are the qualities that make the husband suitable to marry the girl? Now, in this process, of course, it's recommended for both parties to make istikhara, and that could be done many times. And it's also good for them to do istishara, which is to seek counsel, to seek advice, to go to virtuous people in the community who know the families, they know the potential spouse on either side, and they can give good advice about whether they think they're suitable or not. And this is really important because people may be known uh, in ways that others may not know them because of relationships or business or interactions. So if a person comes to me, you know, and it's happened before here, and they say, you know, I want to ask about so-and-so. Do you think they are a suitable spouse? And the question is, the answer is always, it depends. It depends on who's asking, who's interested. Because maybe there's a suitability that's very obvious between them in personality and in religious commitment. Maybe there's not. Maybe there's something with this person that's a huge red flag. Now, if someone comes to you asking about this person, if you think they're a suitable spouse, and you know from direct experience that they have a lot of red flags, warning signs, it is not riba, it's not backbiting for you to mention those things. You can say to them, that person is a this and a that. You, you just mentioned the facts. You're not mentioning disparaging remarks. You're not saying they, they are a cheat in business and they have bad taste in footwear. Like, that part's backbiting. But the first part is relevant to the marriage. So Imam al-Nawi mentions this in Al-Adhkar among the exceptions for the prohibition of riba. One of them is if you are speaking about the qualities of a person uh, who may enter into a business relationship or a marriage with someone and you need to warn them so they don't marry that person with all those red flags. So this is a part of that process. It's good to find out that person's friends. They should, you should know uh, man and woman. You should know the parents of, of the potential bride and, and husband. What are the parents like? How is their relationship? You know? How is the girl, how does she relate to her siblings, her brothers, right? How does she relate to her sisters? How does he relate to his sisters? A lot of these things will reflect how that person's going to be with the spouse, right? And the, what you see in the family dynamic may be modeling for that person what they think a marriage is going to be. So be careful here. So <coughs> uh, a couple more points. These are sort of random. Um, among the recommendations in that process of getting to know the person and uh, proposing 
It is mustahab, it is recommended for the man to marry a virgin due to the hadith of Jabir radiallahu anhu where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says uh, This is a recommendation, it's not an obligation. A man can marry uh, any woman who is suitable regardless of her, uh, you know, if she's divorced or widowed, that's fine as well. But it's generally recommended for a man to marry a virgin. Uh, having said that, I want to mention this here because we live in complicated times. It is the right of either side, the male or the female, it is their right to only want to marry a virgin. If one of them has had past indiscretions, zina, fornication, and the other person says, I only want to marry a virgin, you see there's a problem here. It's a, it's a tricky situation because if that person had a past indiscretion, should they be just confessing what they did? They shouldn't be confessing what they did. But that person, the other person also has the right to marry someone who hasn't had indiscretions. So the solution, the scholars say, is that they can't be forced to confess that they've had indiscretions in the past, but they have to respect that right. And the way they respect that right is by carefully and very discreetly disqualifying themselves or pulling themselves out of the process uh, if they had those past indiscretions. This is the right of that person. It doesn't mean they confess. It just means that they feel things out and find the right way to get out and just say, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to work. There's other things, you know, that's it. You know, may Allah give you what's good. And I, and I only say this because fiqh deals with all sorts of human possibilities. Fiqh is not just for pious Muslims. Fiqh is for pious Muslims and disobedient Muslims. It gives us solutions and ways to keep ourselves in obedience to Allah, even if we were previously disobedient to Allah. <coughs> the communication point I mentioned already, that's just a, a side issue here. Now, coming to the issue of uh, this ca capacity or this uh, suitability, kafa'a, the husband, when we talk about suitability, we're talking about the qualities that the husband has to have, the potential husband. The husband has to have, among the qualities he should have, he should have rushd and kafa'a. So rushd, I have here in Arabic, Rushd is defined as the mental capacity. That's what it is. Mental capacity is basically one who is mature and sane and they know how to handle money. The opposite of this quality, the person who has rushd, we call them safi. And Allah Ta'ala mentions this term in the Quran that you should not give your wealth, not give the wealth to the sufaha, right? Uh, and that you have to, if you are, for example, entrusted with caring for an orphan, and that orphan is among the sufaha, uh, you have to wait until they mature. And, and when you find that they have now rushed, then you can give the money to them that's entrusted. So there's a process here. So if the person is safi, which means they're basically slow, like they're just mentally a little on the slow side, then they're not actually ready to marry. And the slow side here doesn't, it doesn't mean what many think it means. It means they don't have a, a proper conception of money. They don't think about costs. They spend frivolously. If you give them $1,000, they'll just go out and buy uh, <laughs> 10 pairs of shoes. And they don't think about, oh, I have to pay my rent. They're like really that foolish with money. If they are like that, then... Uh, it's not that marriage is off limits completely and they're disqualified. It's just that there's a process and they have to be developed. So let's say he knows how to handle money. He checks that box off. The next quality he has to have is kafa'a, which is compatibility. The husband uh, should marry someone with whom he is compatible in that she has qualities that the sharia takes into consideration where he and she are on basically an equal playing field in those qualities, 
or he has uh, more of those qualities. It's either they are the same, or he has more of those qualities that the Sharia takes into consideration. And this is where we get to the nitty-gritty details of what really is compatibility, what are the qualities that husband needs to have to be suitable to marry your daughter. So marriages, of course, require this sakina, this tranquility in love and respect. And we also recognize the biological reality, the biological reality of hypergamy. That's in the realm of hukum adi, just empirical observation. And hypergamy is basically this innate female drive to seek men who are better than them. I don't mean like in an intrinsic ontological superiority. I mean uh, one who has a certain status more than them, right? They don't, women don't tend to want to marry down. That's just biology. You tell a man, would you like to marry this girl? She's dirt poor, but she's beautiful and has good deen. A man does not care about her money. Most men do not care about money. They would just want beauty, respect, and deen. Not necessarily in that order, but they want those things. But a woman, of course she wants deen, but it's not in her biological nature to want to marry down on the social ladder. That's hypergamy. This is basic biology. So that influences how women will select mates. It also uh, influences attraction and power dynamics for long-term relationships. So this is the woman's tendency or desire to marry the best possible man she can find. So really hypergamy is what defines, or it's what, how would you say this? Hypergamy is in the background to our fiqh discussion on compatibility as well as polygamy, ta'addud. Because if you look at a man marrying more than one wife, the social dynamics animating that is all hypergamy and social status that makes him an attractive mate where a woman would not necessarily mind being the second or the third, right? Uh, not, you know, that's not our topic here, but this is animating that discourse. The notion that uh, women are, are ingrained in their nature to want someone who has a higher social status than them. Or equal, yes, but not necessarily lower. And this informs the fiqh discussion on compatibility. So, you know, on basic, on basic terms, the kafa'a is the framework by which the father, the wali, guardian, uh, ensures the best possible spouse for his daughter. Right? How many of you here have daughters that are not yet married? Okay. So I'm going to address this to the fathers first. Think about that potential spouse for your daughter. You know, um, let's not think about what she wants right now, right? Let's think about what you want, what qualities you want in the husband. Wouldn't you want someone, wouldn't, don't you have high standards? Absolutely, high standards. That's natural. And of course, the, the mothers have high standards too. It's just, when we think of the standards, it's as a man looking at another man. So the kafa'a is that framework by which the wali ensures that this potential spouse is meeting certain standards, right? Now, <coughs> kafa'a, the notions of kafa'a change from time to time and place to place, culture to culture. And in modern society, the marker of social status is largely financial. Uh, in this society and pretty much all over the world, a man's money and resources signal higher status, and this results in attraction from women. Obviously, not to say that other factors aren't important, but these are the patterns we observe in, in society, the hukum adi we observe. In other societies, there are other markers of status besides uh, wealth, right? It could be the standing that person has in the tribe, right? It could be the reputation among their tribe, uh, how, how the, the rank they have and the leadership role they have, even if they don't have a lot of money, right? When Sayyida Khadija radiallahu anha and the Prophet sallallahu got married, financially she had more wealth. But was she marrying up or down 
she's marrying up because the marker of social status in that time was not just money. It was, there were so many other qualities in that tribal society. So even in that case, the biological reality of hypergamy is there. Uh, and we say it just because that's an observation of nature, right? Otherwise, that marriage was decreed by Allah Ta'ala and there was a wisdom in everything that unfolded. So, I want to talk about kafa'a from two perspectives. From the Maliki school, which is a very bare-boned, simple way of looking at kafa'a, and then the Hanafi school. We're coming back to Imam Abu Hanifa here. Right? So in the Maliki school, kafa'a, suitability between the two spouses, is primarily considered in deen. That is to say that in the Maliki school, the main, the primary consideration is deen, and other considerations aren't really given that much weight over deen. And the basis for this is the words of Allah Ta'ala, إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ Indeed, the noblest of you in the sight of Allah are the most God-fearing. And the hadith that we read earlier, if there comes to you with an offer of marriage, one whose deen and khuluq you are pleased, then marry her to him. All of the madahib agree that the primary element of suitability is deen. But some of the other madahib add other things that are a part of kafa'a. In the Maliki school, deen is primary. They don't really consider the other things. Sort of. Now, <coughs> when the Maliki school talks about suitability and deen, what they mean is that the husband, the potential husband, is not a fasiq. They're not a person who openly commits major sins. So the fasiq in this context would be someone who, let's, let's say someone who goes around openly drinking alcohol, publicly. They're a public drunk. That's an open fasiq. We don't mean someone who may sin from time to time, major and minor sins, but it's private, behind closed doors, and they make tawbah, and they struggle with this. We're talking about a person whose fisq, their corruption, is known. It doesn't mean that the husband is necessarily more pious than the potential spouse. Because it is indeed a possibility that he marries her and she is saliha, more righteous than he is. But in determining suitability, the starting point is, is he or is he not a fasiq? If he's not a fasiq and they're more or less on par in terms of religious commitment, there is your kafa'a, there is your suitability. It's not fitting for the wali, the father of a girl, to be satisfied with her marrying a fasiq. And in the, in the madahib, there's a lot of discussion about uh, the validity of those contracts in the first place. But we'll get into that. But that's the primary uh, element of kafa'a, compatibility in matters of deen. So if she's praying and he's not, there's no kafa'a. If he's doing open sins, there's no kafa'a. So... If she's, I mean, God forbid, but these things happen. If she's not praying, and he's not praying, I mean, there's no kafa'a, really. She should be praying, and he should be praying. But in terms of his suitability to her, he can't be doing open sins. He can't be neglecting these obvious things, like salat. And, <coughs> I mean, hopefully we never have that situation, but that's what we say. Now, all of the four schools agree on compatibility in deen, as I said. But the Hanafis and others, they include other elements. They include nasab, lineage. And this is because within certain lineages, there are shared cultural norms. And there are reputations involved where certain lineages and families are known for certain qualities of character and some from some lineages are known for other things uh, it doesn't mean those are bad people it just means that there's certain norms just as you have certain uh, cultural norms among a broad people within those people you have certain norms among lineages um, and this is especially the case in the far east right that's a consideration it's not the be-all and end-all determinant, but it's something to consider. It's not a question of racism. It's just a question of suitability. Uh, is this person from this 
background culturally compatible with this girl and vice versa? Are there going to be very obvious cultural conflicts because of the differences between them that may lead to a breakdown in the marriage? These are important questions to consider. And maybe in knowing, getting to know that person, you realize that even though they come from a, a different cultural background, uh, they don't have those barriers. And I think that's definitely the case in North America because you may have a person from this country and a person from that country, two different cultures, but their children grew up here. So they have a shared cultural experience. So would that lineage or the difference in lineage disqualify? Not necessarily. It's always gonna be a case by case basis. So, but it's something to consider. Another consideration is profession. Imam Abu Hanifa, the Madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa does consider profession, the husband's profession, as a factor for compatibility, right? Because the expectation is that the, the, the girl getting married is going to either be in the exact same social economic bracket as she grew up in, or she will be in a higher social economic bracket. She should not be expected to marry someone of a lower social economic bracket. Now, if she chooses to do that and the family is fine with that, that's permissible. That's her decision. But there's no expectation in Sharia that she has to do that. And it's fully within her rights and it's a part of the nature to want to be in the same basic lifestyle that you grew up in and are accustomed to or a little better, right? So this is why the profession is considered uh, social standing, social economic things. Uh, and that the same thing goes for wealth. It's basically the same thing. <coughs> now, this compatibility is all with respect to the female, not the male. A male can marry someone from a lower social economic class or someone in the same class. And again, this is not it's not even about preferential treatment. It's about recognizing human biology and the, just the nature of hypergamy and the need or the, the innate desire of females to have either the same social economic status because of the security or something higher because that's just the nature, right? It's not fair to uh, emotionally blackmail a girl to marry someone from a lower social economic class when that's going against her fitrah, her biological nature to want to have security from someone in the same bracket or higher. Now, if she ha is, wants to marry someone from a lower socioeconomic status and the parents are fine with that, that's okay. And it could even be praiseworthy if she's looking at other considerations that in her mind uh, outweigh that consideration. But it has to be with the uh, permission of the father, the wali, the family have to be involved in that decision. So, uh, so again, as we see in this slide, no one can force a woman to marry down, including her guardian. The father can't demand this. If a girl and her father slash guardian are pleased to marry a man of a lower social economic status, it's permitted. If a girl wants to marry a man of a lower social economic status and her father slash guardian refuses, it's not permitted for her to marry him. And that's the last slide. So the reason why we covered just these two is because the next thing we talk about is the aqd, the contract itself. So what is the contract? What is a valid contract? What are permissible conditions to put in a contract? What are impermissible conditions to put in a contract? We'll talk about that next week, inshallah. And I didn't include that tonight because it's, it's, it's quite a lot. So we'll end with this, inshallah, and open up the floor for any questions that you may have. Yes. That's common. Well, she cannot get married without the father's permission. 
right? Now we have to explore, in, in due time we'll explore some of these scenarios that pop up from time to time where the father's being unreasonable and she fears she's going to fall into the haram. Or maybe the father is uh, not religiously aware and he's just putting unreasonable demands. So there's, we have to carefully navigate this and we don't want to give the wrong message to people. I, I'm sometimes surprised. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll give a class and I'll say something and someone will listen to it either in the class or on YouTube and they come to me and said, you know in that class you said such and such. I didn't say that. I said, you misunderstood. What I said is this, this, and this. And I'm, I mention that now because if I, say, if I say it in the wrong way, some people may think, they may take the idea that, oh, if my father is just being unreasonable, I can go run off and marry someone, you know, like one of those Las Vegas shotgun weddings. Uh, there are certain circumstances where the girl can have recourse to, some, to the Qadi or someone representing the Qadi in a community if the father is being uh, unreasonable beyond the norms of Sharia. But I don't want to just say it like that because then people think, oh, so we can just run off and go to the Imam at this town and get married. And you know, any Imam who is being observant of these things will stipulate the presence of the Wali and the only workaround would be if she's been married before, right? And if she hasn't been married before, there's no wedding going to happen. Yeah, but we'll, we'll explore that in more detail when we get to the issue of conflicts between the parents and the children over the choice of spouse and what recourse there is. Right. And their parents aren't Muslim. Right. So they're trying to navigate yeah. you know, that. Yeah, we, we want to explore that as well. Okay. And it touches on something that I just mentioned now, that the, it's either a qadi or a person or a group of people in a community who take the place of the qadi in terms of executing certain uh, sharia rulings. This is a great need we have in all of our communities. And we've been actually working at something that resembles that here in, in Pittsburgh among some of the imams, where you have imams coming together and they basically adjudicate issues of marriage annulment. And this is the most common issue you have in pretty much every city where there's lots of Muslims. The most common scenario is the husband and wife have problems and the husband either runs off somewhere or he goes back to his home country or he's somewhere else in America or maybe even in the city and he refuses to pronounce the talaq and he refuses to grant her the khula so she is muallaqa she is in suspended animation she's not enjoying the benefits of marriage or the freedom that comes with divorce and the opportunity to get remarried. And she is stuck. Maybe she gets a civil divorce in the court, but she's still, shara'an, legally speaking, she's still stuck. What are her options? He refuses a divorce. He refuses to grant the khula. Well, in this case, we have to look at what are the grounds, but with the grounds are there, the qadi would do the fasq, the annulment. But what if you're in a place like America where there's no qadi, right? There's no... There's no Sharia ruler here. So the Imams mentioned that when you are in a place in the absence of a Qadi, the Imams, the, the elders, the learned people in the community come together and act effectively as a Qadi adjudicating on these kinds of questions. So there has to be a framework and there has to be objectivity and transparency and all of that. And alhamdulillah, you know, we have lots of organizations in North America that have been developing that kind of work so that they can operate like that and serve the needs of the community. So this is where you get from talking about the personal ibadat of tahara and salat and all those things we've been learning into the nitty-gritty details in the trenches of human conflict and how to resolve them in a way that is pleasing to Allah Ta'ala and that preserves the objectives of sharia among families.
So, yeah, it's all coming. I mean, it's not going to be a whole class on how to do that, but we'll talk about the issues that are pertinent to converts uh, and men and women and, you know, everybody, inshallah. <coughs> yes. They don't have to confess, but, but yeah, if they know, if they know, if it's common knowledge and you know, you, you would want that person to avoid the red flag. Or if, if you know they stopped, yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, if you know that that, per let's go to the example I mentioned earlier, the virginity question. Let's say you know that this young man has a very high standard. He doesn't want, let me take that back. That's not a high standard, is it? It's a basic standard. He has the basic standard. You know that about him. And you also know this history. Maybe she made Toba, but you know that this is what he's looking for. He doesn't want to look for anything else. Are you entitled to go to him and tell him very discreetly that this is the reality? Uh, I don't see why not. It wouldn't be backbiting. It's not a pretty situation, but he has the right. She has the right to conceal her past and not disclose her sins that she's made Toba for, but he also has his rights. And she can't knowingly go into that marriage when, he know, when she knows that that is his demand, because that is a ghish, that's deception. So she's entering the marriage deceiving him. What's going to happen when he finds out? You know, will he find out? Maybe, maybe not, but this is the recipe for a disaster. It's a greater harm for them to get married with that deception and for him to find out. And then what if kids are in the picture now? There's just so many second and third order effects that are far greater than the uncomfortable nature of disclosing something that's quite, it's quite disturbing, but that needs to be shared discreetly. And I'm saying this is a general comment. I think there's always, there's always a case-by-case -case basis where we gotta look at the specifics of each case to see what's the most appropriate way of, of, of tackling the issue. But always, he has that right. And she doesn't have the right to deceive him on this matter. She has the right to conceal her sins. She has the demand to keep her sins hidden that she's repented from. But she doesn't have the right to deceive him either. So it's a very sticky situation. Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, he famously said that new complex issues present themselves to people in proportion to the sins they commit. So basically, the more haram we get involved in in our life, the more complicated issues arise that we need solutions for. So really, what we're talking about is essentially a solution for something that has occurred due to someone doing, involving themselves in the haram, right? It's not a, it's, it's a tricky matter, it's not pleasant, but we have to navigate these things very carefully. Any other There's questions? A question online. I read it. Uh, what does the Sheikh advise for a graduate of Adar Ulum who is also a health care professional, but who is struggling to marry <coughs> as people consider this person to be too strict due to his background? Can you repeat the question? What does the Sheikh advise for a graduate of Adar Ulum who is also a health care professional, who is struggling to get married because people consider this person to be it's tough because you need to have networks you know you need to have networks among your friends and the dollar alum and families the families of those classmates who are on a similar level and understanding as you if you have those networks they can look out for you they can keep an ear out and eye out for people who may be suitable who are in that same general, on that same general wavelength, uh, it's really a practical question. Because if people consider you too strict, I'm gonna 
go out on a limb here and assume that that's just their incorrect perception because they are in them, themselves negligent. Let's just assume they're not super strict. They're just they're just mutadayin. They're just they're committed to following their deen. They want to find someone on a similar wavelength. So it, it becomes a practical question of how do you find people who are like that, networks of families who are like that, or friends who have family members like that. This is where, hopefully, if your parents are on the same wavelength, they can reach out. Uh, classmates, you can ask them uh, to ask their parents and siblings if they're on a similar wavelength. That's often the case. And uh, hopefully, in doing that, you'll find someone. This becomes a practical question, really. Um, I don't, I'm not up to date with the Islamic matrimonial sites. I would imagine they're pretty horrible, but <laughs> I wouldn't know. Alhamdulillah, I've been married 15 years. So thank God I got married 15 years ago because the current environment navigating it looks absolutely uh, frightening from the outside. I don't know. But, uh, you know, may Allah make things easy. And the, the struggle to get married is, it's a, it's a very unique kind of struggle because you want to fulfill that aspect of your deen, that half of your deen, and you also don't want to marry the wrong person and get involved in something that's going to just really turn your life upside down if you marry the wrong person. So you have to use that opportunity to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, use the means in the world by reaching out to people, going out of your comfort zone to establish networks, uh, but also take the spiritual means, you know, you can do that through a variety of methods. Salatul Hajjah, you know, recite Surah Yasin many times, uh, give Sadaqah with that intention that Allah facilitates marriage for you, you know. There's lots of different means. May Allah make that easy for the questioner and provide, uh, I'm assuming it's a him, uh, provide him a righteous spouse that is exactly what he's looking for and even more. I mean. Um, we did a matrimonial event here a few years ago. So that, the whole thing was like a bad idea then. We had people S register. Speed dating? <laughs> yes, kind of, yeah. Yeah, they're ge generally a bad idea. We, we had people, that was the only time we did it because Isma is doing it mm -hmm. and a lot of families were requesting us to do it mm -hmm. because everybody's looking for their son or daughter to be married and it's not happening. Yeah. So uh, that was our motivation to do it right here. Five years ago? Six years ago? Seven. Seven years ago. So... What we learned today, that was all wrong. Men and women meeting each other without a, any family. If it just happens... Right here. Yeah. If it just happens, it happens, but uh, as, as opposed to organizing a formal event, yeah. There, there is a way, I, I don't know if there exists anything like this anymore, but there used to it's be. Isma nice is still doing it. Oh yeah, Isma does it. Yeah. I know of I know of a friend who went through that experience of the the whole the whole Isna speed dating thing. He actually he was passing through town. It was in Ohio, and he he came here, stayed at the house, and we were talking. And then he came back, and he came back. He looked pretty dejected after that. But yeah, those things are really awkward and kind of cringe and difficult. There is one method that I think may work. And it used to be, it used to exist. I don't know if it exists anymore. There was a brother who set up a website. It was a matrimonial website, but hear me out. <laughs> the matrimonial website, in my opinion, was very ingenious because there's no pictures, there's no profiles, there's nothing whatsoever. There's just a landing page with an opportunity for you to register and fill in your personal information, your bio data, and upload a picture, and it's all private. So the men fill out an application, and they submit it, that's it. They don't see anything. 
the females fill out their application and upload their picture, click. After that application is received, the, the owner of the site sends only to the females a document that has all 200, 300 of these people. It's already kind of funneled in for people who are looking for a certain kind of spouse, but it's only the women. The women get this document and it just has the bio data of 100 plus people who fit the general criteria that they fit up. If the woman uh, has an interest in a particular man in that list, she is responsible to message the owner of the website and then he just shares the email and the contact and then it, it's pretty much it. So it's her choice and this may work, maybe not. It seems like it, it's worked for a lot of people, but I think it's a lot better than these matrimonial sites that are just, I don't know, I can't speak about them today. It's, Yeah, if you collected the bio data and applications of men and women in the community and you have someone who uh, looks after these things and they share relevant information to people based on similarities or who they think might be a fit, it can be discreet, avoid all of the complications that come with the whole speed dating thing, and it could be a means of facilitating, you know, the, the anti-rishta facilitator, you know, but it's more organized, right? It's like you appoint someone as the auntie for Rishta and she has applications and she screens. Uh, it's definitely a khidma in the community that's needed. 